podcast. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Ney. Today is another fantastic day for an interview, and I've got a fantastic guest with me. Unfortunately, it's it's a shame that we have to talk about the, the topic for today, because in an ideal world, man, for crying out loud, why can't we all play together and be nice to each other? But unfortunately, that is not a reality for many, many men and women out there. So today, a bit of a trigger warning here, guys. We're going to be talking about domestic violence. And it's only only right that we talk about it now. A, to to honor all the men and women out there who have suffered it and are, are continuing to suffer it, to show that there are ways out of that scenario, out of that, that life. And it is, after all, uh, by the time we are airing this this beautiful interview, it will be the month of October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So let's go out there. Let's spread the word that the past does not equal the future and that we all can help by raising awareness and therefore making it easier for men and women to break out of their, their prison um, of domestic violence. And today I've got Agape Garcia with me. Agape, thank you so much for being on my show. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Mm. And it is, uh, and the honor is all mine. Absolutely. Because you, Agape, you have gone through a lifetime, a lifetime of challenges. And this lifetime has put you in a scenario where you were so so threatened by your life with your life threatened with you with everything that meant to be you um you decided no it things need to change and you became very active in helping other women to change and go out there and seek help and this is fantastic but in order to to see the light now we need to see the darkness so how was it for you to grow up how was it um, was there a happy childhood? Oh, wow. We're going to the beginning. Okay. <laughs> well, um, that's actually, that's actually pretty loaded. So I will um, be honest and get straight to the point. Um, as it relates to trauma, I believe that I, it started while I was an embryo in my mother's stomach. Um, she dealt with a very abusive, um, marriage. And when I was, I was a mistake, I, I heard that many of times I was a mistake and she dealt with, you know, abuse during the marriage, during her pregnancy. So I believe that I felt a lot of that trauma while I was, like I said, in the embryo stage. And, when I was two years old, she had already had another child. So I had a, I had a baby sister and she decided to pack her bags and leave. And when I say pack her bags, I mean, that's all she took. So she left me and my baby sister in the environment that she ran away from. And shortly after her departure, my sister was diagnosed with cancer and that did not take long at all. Um, to take her life. I clearly remember playing in the hospital with her running up and down the hallways with the bright lights and the little orange and yellow play school cart, the plastic carts from back in the day. And um, she was gone. And overnight, it my dad, I would say, you know, 
looking back, my dad lost everything, his, his wife, his baby girl, and then looking at me, the one that was the mistake. Right. And for him to cope, he just checked out. He worked third shift and slept all day. So his life was while I was sleeping and my life while he was, is was while he was sleeping. So there really was no bonding or connection. And before I knew it, everything that a child could potentially be stripped of every void a child could possibly have, I inherited right away and had no idea that it was going to be up to me to fill those gaps or figure out how to substitute all these voids and losses. Well, you don't know that they are losses. You don't know that they are voids. That's a normal, normal childhood for you because you're living it. You're right now in it. Um, did you did you have friends that where there were different role models there, or was was your whole your whole life a bit like that? Well, as an only child and with my you know no parent really to supervise me, it was pretty much the neighborhood that you know mm. raised me. I would have to say, and school was my escape. So, as you say, friends. You know, that's that's kind of a hard thing to say, too, while you're in grammar school. You know, your friends are whoever's in your classroom, whoever's next to you. Um, but what I can say is what I did at such a young age, uh, you know, because I'm an only child. The, the house was quiet all the time, like so quiet that it's loud, that loud ringing in your ears from that silence. Mm. And I was not allowed to have friends over. I, there was no pets. It was just silence. So I found ways to be a part of every single thing that the school had to offer, every single thing that the community park had to offer. So if there were plays, if there was after school programs, if there was gymnastics at the park, like whatever it was, I was everywhere but home. Which, of course, can be a very powerful motivator. Um, was that really a first try of escapism? Or was it actually you yearning for a meaningful life uh, with hindsight? Well, see, and that's where it gets tricky because I strongly believe now, looking back, that as children, we have this sense of survival automatically in us. We have this sense of no fear automatically in us. Like we just want to be problem solvers, regardless of how big the problem is, because we don't know any better, right? <laughs> true, 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 true. Absolutely. So yeah. did you become a people pleaser? Um, I don't think so. I actually was quite an introvert, even though I was very outgoing. Um, I spent a lot of time at the cemetery after school as well, because the cemetery was actually closer to school than where I lived. So I would bond with my deceased sister doing homework, just talking. And like, that was the only place I felt like a real safe, emotional connection. Cause I, I didn't have it anywhere else, nowhere. Um, so that was that was the only that was the only place. So I'm not quite sure that I even knew what the heck I was doing. I was just doing what I felt was great for the moment, whatever was making me happy and filling my time. It was more about filling my time. I didn't want to be home. <laughs> mm. I mean, that is as a child, but then as a teenager, suddenly new possibilities come around to escape from that, from from your thoughts, from your emotions from or the, the lack thereof. 
uh, when was the first time you engaged maybe in not so healthy coping mechanisms? Did alcohol play a role? What about drugs? Um, sure. Yes. All of that. Very young because I was exposed to that. My remember my dad was not the healthiest man. Uh, <laughs> that was the environment my mom, my mother ran away from. And with him being so young and his coping mechanisms, like I said, working third shift, sleeping all day, well, the weekends were party time. Right. And I got dragged around to all of that, all of it. I saw everything that you would protect the child from seeing. So it's very ironic that... Um, even when I was exposed as like eighth grade, freshman year of high school, definitely during rebellious, rebellious years, because I already had a, a mind of a work ethic. I was doing, delivering newspapers, cleaning houses, washing cars, pulling weeds, mowing lawns, just to buy bread and peanut butter and jelly to feed myself, you know, and get things little girls need. Um, so at that time, I thought I knew it all and I could do whatever. And I really, didn't start with the alcohol until sophomore year because I was already a dropout at that time. Mm. And I was definitely, um, some, yeah, I was definitely getting involved in into some drugs. You say dropout. Uh, that's interesting because often enough, uh, young, young humans, young people, um, when they hate home, they love school and they try to to be good at school. And because they're constantly there, they might be maybe get noticed and maybe get get the support they need. Maybe they grow. Was that happening with you? How were your school grades? How were your marks? Well, interesting that you say that because in grammar school, I was in the honor roll damn near every year. At one point, I was in the newspaper for straight A's. So when I got to high school, uh. Like I said, I already knew the streets. I already was stealing uh, my dad's car while he was sleeping. I already had a work ethic. I was making money. I knew how to get around. You know, I'm uh, thinking shit. I'm an adult. Yeah. I'm 14 and I'm an adult. I had ran uh, away from home and everything. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So there were different priorities in your young life. Maybe not surprisingly. Not Maybe not surprisingly, because here you were. Um, oh, wow, okay. Um, how did that continue? Oh, more importantly... What did what did the drugs or what did the alcohol give you? Who did it turn you into? What need did it fulfill? You know, I would have to say at that age, I don't think there was a reason, rhyme or purpose. It was just more like, hey, we're young, we're dumb, we're yeah. out, we're just, you okay. know, gaffing off. I was I grew up in a not so good neighborhood, so it was already out outside any time of the day or night that you wanted it so it was completely accessible and basically considered the norm i mean i'll i'll be very transparent and honest with you we were hanging out at the park drinking mad dog 2020 i mean how sick can you freaking get like it's not fun to be behind the bushes throwing up at two after two o'clock in the afternoon you know what i'm saying like <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> what the heck it wasn't it wasn't for a reason it was just to be like cool and dumb <laughs> okay Okay. Oh, that's very cool. Um, cool. Did drugs, uh, were drugs easily available? Oh, yeah, of course. All the mm. time, 24-7. Um, I would have tempting? to say... Well, everything was tempting, for mm. sure. Everything. Um, I would have to say that I I experimented, but because I saw so much of what it did 
to my dad and all his friends and how I suffered as a little girl, literally like my eyes burning or my skin feeling like it's like melting and just I going back to that time of childhood, seeing how they were all passing the mirror and roll with the rolled up dollar bills and acting a fool. And, you know, just I knew what I didn't want to be a part of because I was already exposed to it. I, yeah, it wasn't until later that it became more of a coping mechanism for me. Interesting. Interesting. And that is often what you described there is so typical for, for children that come out of an environment where parents are alcoholics or, or uh, taking drugs. Uh, That's interesting. Okay. So there was this kind of roller coaster affair, a love affair, hate affair with uh, drugs and with alcohol um, in a young woman who is far more mature in certain aspects of her life uh, than others yet emotionally probably rather immature and and probably rather confused and trying to make the most out of a world where the role models are few and far between. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I think there was a lot of internal battles going on, you know, like it was just, you know, this is wrong, but you know that mm. this, it's okay because everybody's doing it. And even though you saw it as a little kid and it, and it, you know, it, I miss school, I miss church. I miss the, like my dad got into serious life-threatening accidents. Like there was just so much negativity. I didn't see the positive. I only saw the negative. And then I was a recipient of it too. You mm. know, like the play fighting got rough. There was things Things that should have happened that or that shouldn't have happened that did, you know, so I knew not just like on that on that little kid level, but also, you know, on a more mature level. So I kind of already knew like what I didn't want to look like, what I didn't want to smell like, how I didn't want to act. I didn't want that type of drama, you know, so. It was it was a very, you know, like back and forth thing because that's what it was. But then as a teenager, everybody's doing it because you're growing up and this is just what's supposed to happen. It's in front of you. Everybody's, you know, mm-hmm. and you you are you're curious and you try things out. So, you know, it doesn't become fun until later. <laughs> good one. Good one. A, a very valuable insight there. When was the first Mr. Right coming along? Oh, Mr. Right Wrong. So Mr. <laughs> right Wrong was a part of that sophomore year, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, and he was very much so a big part of the um, exposure to the drug, you know, like, right. yeah, yeah. And uh, we were together for about for five years, and it was very abusive. Uh, and every area possible, uh, just down the list. And it wasn't until I became pregnant and said, I'm breaking all the links here. I am not going to be the mother that I had who ran off. I'm not going to be the father that I had who was checked out. And I am definitely not going to have my daughter around a man that's doing the same thing that my dad was doing. Like, hell no, I'm breaking all these links. Mm. It's interesting that it needed your daughter to come onto this earth uh, or into development before you saw the repetition of a theme occurring. Um, you hated what was happening with your dad, yet you got attracted to the same to the same kind of mold of men. Um, right. Is that, can you make sense out of that with hindsight? 
I just didn't know any better. Mm, you know, I just didn't fair know call. any better. Fair call. And you have got some emotions, and there is this kind of maybe strong, probably macho type, uh, type who is um, who is maybe something that you can align yourself with. Maybe there is really on a deep, deep down level of seeking survival. You want to be together with someone who you think is strong, who can help you navigate through this world. And if you don't know better, you go for for something that looks good, and with hindsight, might be not the best of all choices. And, you know, I think what I struggled with the most was just being abandoned and rejected, like mm. being abandoned by my own mother, who was strong enough to pack her own stuff, but mm. not. But also, so so us that you, the two people you pushed out of you don't belong to you. Like mm. I couldn't wrap my head around that for the longest time, mm. you know, mm. and then it's like, what animal, what animal abandons their their cubs? Like mm. I just it took me so long to wrap my head around that and then to constantly be told by the other parent, the checked out parent, you know, mm. you were a mistake. As soon as you're 18, you're no longer my responsibility. I'm providing a roof over your head. And that's that's my that's my job. That's my only job. And that's it. So it's like for me, I'm like, OK, so my own mother didn't want me. And then I'm and I'm sitting here listening to my dad and I'm like, OK, so he obviously is pissed off that he has me. Mm. So I think that during that time, unknowingly, I was just searching to feel wanted. Mm. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so. Mm. So how did your your partner take it when you suddenly said, nah, bugger off? Oh, well, so I decided to do that when he chose to turn to the streets and get heavier into the drugs. I there was there was a couple instances. The first time was when I was eight months pregnant and I came home and caught him. Uh, we got into a pretty big fight. I ended up going to the hospital and was admitted was ended up wearing a heart monitor for the rest of the pregnancy mm -hmm. being diagnosed with, you know, tachycardia arrhythmia. And it was just, it was just so much stress, anxiety, drama. Um, I didn't realize until, you know, that's that time, that experience that, you know, heartache and mental health is plays a big role on your physical health. Oh, hell yes. And mm -hmm. I, I learned the hard way. Mm -hmm. I did. I, I learned the hard way. So, you know, after that, he, promise to change of course here goes like the textbook stuff right so promise to change etc and then by the time I had my daughter um that's when I said you know he turned to the streets and got into the drugs heavier and I was like yeah no I am 100% not doing this we were living together we were you know I don't want to say playing house but you know we were the family mm. so I packed everything to include my baby <laughs> And I left and I went to a basement where there was no heat, just cement floor and brick walls with a bathroom. And I made it into a little studio and peace of mind is way more valuable than, you know, carpet and, and, and drywall. Like, I don't care that. No, no, no. Where did the money come from? Here you were high pregnant and, and you then had a girl. And whilst your work ethic has always been strong, um, it's hard in that scenario. How did you live? Absolutely. So um, good question. And I will have to say that this is where the blessings came in because I worked almost until I was like, one week out from having my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. 
Oh yeah. And, and it was a family owned business. It was a pet store. It was a family owned pet store and they loved me. I mean, I was, I was a hard worker. I had all the ethics from, you know, childhood. And as soon as my daughter got her first set of shots, I asked if I could come back. They said yes. And I did. And they, they supported me so much. I was able to bring my baby in her walker while I did uh, inventory, while I, you know, went to the register, while I took care of, you know, the stuff in the back and setting the shelves and I mean like I it was just a blessing and I had other jobs after that like corporate jobs where if they wanted me to work overtime or on the weekend and I said well I have to bring my daughter I would put her like in the shipping bins with all the popcorn the packing popcorn and she'd be in there playing and playing while I'm like over there working my ass (laughs) okay okay I can see that I can see that and so I'm so pleased that you were always having a bit of a lifeline there. Um, So many women, um, they don't have either the work ethic or the skills or the support. Whatever it is, the combination is they're trapped in their surroundings. They feel trapped and they, they don't know how to get out. And money is the one thing, because often enough, domestic violence is very much a financial violence so to speak. So they are, they are, they don't have their own money. They don't have access to the money. Uh, everything is controlled by the perpetrator. And, and when I say women here, let's get that clear. Um, there are equally, there are men that are finding themselves in the same role. I think that the ratio is just overwhelmingly female as the victims are concerned. So please guys don't, don't come back to me and say, no, no, you never talked about a man. Well, I do, I do, but it is, let's, let's stick with the more common scenario. I think out there, and that's fair to say. And we haven't even started transgender or any kind of LGBTQ uh, issues. They're 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 just as much out there. Please, the same applies regardless of your sexual orientation or sexual identification. Is that fair? Cool. I love exactly what you're saying because I want to say that number one. The statistics that are produced over a period of time, if say that we get a report today of statistics, understand that that data is from like two or three years ago because Mm. it took so long to gather all that data, do the statistical evaluations and calculations in order to do that. And then in doing research, 64% of the statistical data is false data anyways. (laughs) You know, a little bit cynical, aren't we there? (laughs) You know, and, and, Everything that you said and and listen, domestic violence does not discriminate. I don't care what color, what race, what gender, how much money you make, what neighborhood you come from, where. Listen, it does not discriminate, period. The statistics will show you as much as I was just saying, you know, they're old and they're, you know, not accurate. One out of three women are or have been exposed to domestic violence. One out of seven men are or have been exposed to domestic violence. And as it relates to the gender bias, right now all that stuff is new because of that community and all the all the things that you know are changing and for equal rights and no matter you know what you um, identify yourself as. So there's a whole new area now that needs to be dissected, broken down and pulled, you know, stats from. So this is all like a new era for us. Mm. COVID-19 and mm. other things have definitely created an, another pandemic within a pandemic. <laughs> You're very right. You're very right. So and that's so important that we that we highlight that as well, because here we are, we are, we are living in very strange times, things are not getting easier. And whilst there is a better, better, uh, um, 
better ways of you maybe getting information through Zoom, through interviews, through books, through all kind of courses that you can take, which is wonderful. So you can now make better links. At the same token, life is getting harder. Um, virtually the whole world is going through inflation. Food prices are going up, climate. Everything is getting worse. And guess what? What will happen to the domestic well-being? Yeah, my ass, exactly. We certainly see that in this country where uh, we see an increasing amount of homelessness, of of call-outs to, uh, to police with regards to domestic violence. And yeah, it's getting nastier and worse. And therefore, it's so important that we speak out about it and that we actually look at the root causes for domestic violence see where things are actually coming from. So there was a good reason that I asked you, Agape, with regards to your childhood, because often enough, there are many, many, many contributing factors that are laid down very, very early in our lives with regards to core beliefs, with regards to, to experience that we have that form you and that, that will determine how you behave, how you maybe stick within a violent um, relationship rather than then, you know, there's the, the logical thing is, why did you not get out of there? Well, there are damn good reasons why. And that is what we need to explore. That is why, why I'm so grateful that you have shared your past there, because that laid the foundation for your later relationships and how long you stayed in there or how you dealt with them. But so far, we've, we've, we've talked about that. You are now blissful sort of the, the, the single mum um, who is having the support, which is great. Uh, you can get the money. Um, the child is with you. Hey, beautiful roses, unicorns, and and <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you kidding? Just because I left the violent relationship didn't mean that he left me alone. <laughs> ah. You know, there was a lot of pop-ups and showing up and still trying to, you know, be verbally abusive. I mean, to the point where he showed up in front of my new place and took my like kidnapped my baby. She was a year and a half and kidnapped her off of the her three wheeler, her big wheel put her in the car and started driving off that I literally threw myself on the hood. Hold, it was like a movie. I'm holding onto the hood. He's driving like a maniac to get me off. And I'm like, call the police. You know, I mean, almost for a mile, my brand new gym shoes were tore up like, uh, like a commercial. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had to literally get in contact with the police. You know, this is where he lives. He just came and kidnapped my daughter. She's not even in a, in a dry, in a um, baby seat. I mean, it was so much drama, but remember I left because he chose the streets and it was shortly after that, that he got himself into trouble on the streets and he ended up leaving the States. He, you know, I went to Puerto Rico, but here's my thing, because I grew up in that neighborhood, this is why it seemed so normal. That's why it seemed like it was okay. It wasn't until I had my daughter that I said, I do not want to give her the same life. I am in control of changing that. Well, that's what I thought anyways. <laughs> okay. So cool. So for 18 months, hell continues, but now finally unicorns. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, there Are must be a kidding? unicorn somewhere there. Come on. <laughs> well, 
the next thing was like getting up out of this cold basement when in the middle of winter when there's no heat, you know, like this was not our long term, you know, space that we needed to have like an actual, you know, apartment that had walls and kitchen Mm. and, you know, a real place. Mm. So that was that was a a stepping stone for me to just kind of, you know, um, save money. I went back to get my GED. Um, I had help with his after he left the States, I had help from his mom to, um, you know, watch her. And she ended up brainwashing the crap out of me like, oh, you didn't have a mother. So you don't know how to be a mother. I had five kids. I know exactly what my granddaughter needs. Every cry, every tone in her cry. I know exactly what it is. I had to call the cops just to get my baby back when I was like done with work or done with school. Like it became a tug of war with between a a human being. It was like, okay, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. What the hell's going on here? Uh well, 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 well. That's that's I think she probably started driving me to drink a little. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting because there you go. It is it doesn't just it doesn't just you can't just take an act of domestic violence just in its own right. But yes, it's so so important to actually look behind the scenes. And with that, I don't make any apologies. Uh, there was probably quite a good measure of mental illness uh, in, or certainly a personality disorder that uh, that that was displayed there by your mother-in-law or or however the relationship you want to call it. Um, that um, that of course has influenced him. Uh, why the hell was he trying to escape in drugs? And then yeah, right. Yeah, okay, so there, there's always more to a story. Again, not apo- apologizing for deeds that were done um, or not excusing them. Let's put it like that. Okay. So you had her as a false friend was trying to help you, so to speak, and only ended up with being a very double-edged sword. Um, yes. Did How did you get out of that? Okay, so I got my GED and then <laughs> and then the very last day of GED class, we were told that um, it was the last day to register for our associate's degree for uh, com- in the community college. So I, I just pursued. So I continuously, um, you know, after the GED pursued my education and I continuously got out of jobs and, you know, obviously seek like corporate jobs and got out of like the little, I'm sorry to say, but they were very nice to me, the, you know, family owned little <laughs> pet store. And I just, I just started making, you know, money because I was furthering myself mm-hmm. and believe it or not, she, the the in-law frowned upon that saying that that was terrible to do as, as a single mom, how can I work full-time and go to school part-time? I need to, you know, go down and, and file for assistance and work part-time and, you know, collect food stamps so I can, you know, be there when the bell rings uh, in the morning, be there when the bell rings, when, when she gets out and make sure that I'm there every single second to, you know, do everything. And I'm like, okay, I am not cradling, coddling or helicoptering (laughs) Mm. my child like that. I don't know 
I just didn't understand her mindset. I had a completely different one. And my goal was to get out of that neighborhood, that environment, that mindset and grow. And I wasn't going to keep my daughter in that mess either. Mm. So by the time she was in first grade, when kindergarten is no longer half day, you know, first grade is full day, I ended up moving out of the city into the suburbs and was very, very smart and calculating. I moved right across the street from the school my daughter was going to. Mm. My job was about four blocks west and the babysitter was about five blocks east. So even if my car broke down, nobody's missing a day. Like it's not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I was just, I was... I had built such an extreme independence and I didn't trust because obviously, you know, obviously I, at this point in my life, I'm literally convincing myself, okay, if my own mother can leave, anybody can go. If my own father is checked out, I don't expect anybody else to be checked in. If the two people who are supposed to have your back, teach you right and give you everything that you like the tools to survive, uh, I don't trust anybody. So I can only rely on me. And if I'm all I have to make sure that my child receives right instead of wrong, then damn Skippy, I'm going to be exactly that. Mm. And that's so important, isn't it? That's what we see. That is one of the consequences of, of being the daughter of of an alcoholic, uh, even if they're not as if even if there was not as much drama and as much trauma in your life, it's still that that typical uh, lack of trust that uh, such children uh, start to display in their later life, because there have been so many promises that were broken. Oh yeah, yeah. On Saturday we're gonna go out party. No, we're not going out. Um, it's that so that that children they they have great difficulties uh, developing trust later on in their relationships and therefore struggle in their in their upcoming relationships. Um, you had you had that all on steroids for crying out loud. So, <laughs> yeah. oh, God. But and and of course you could say you could you could blame yourself, saying, "Well, here I am. Um, my father was absent, and out of necessity, I am absent because I need to bring in the money. I need to physically fight for the survival of myself and my daughter." Did you have guilt feelings for that? I didn't feel like I was absent. Um, it, it was not like that. I felt that, you know, I took her to the babysitter about 530 in the morning, 545, because I clocked in at six. I did get out just in time for her bell to ring when it was time to get out of school. And I only went to school twice a week. So those other three days, you know, we had a routine and it was a healthy nice. one. Nice. I, I definitely because I know the difference of a parent being checked out and a parent being completely absent i did not i didn't measure to any neither one of those nice nice in my mind (laughs) good okay that's interesting that's interesting i don't want to fast forward too much now uh because obviously your child might have very different opinions (laughs) and that is the same thing that i had to face now i didn't think i was a bad dad um, because I was working so hard, I was providing for them. I was constantly out there, uh, sixteen-hour days, and so. And with hindsight, certainly my younger son as giving me the third degree over abandoning him, not being there for him, etc. During that time, um, so however you play it, uh, there's a price to pay. And but 
that is what it is. We're, now let's let's go one step back because you you are here essentially a go getter. You're a survivor. You are a kick ass superwoman. Actually, going out there to have because nowhere in there did they hear anything about. Well, I was looking after myself. I was um, doing something healthy for me. It was all goal orientated. There was a task, and you achieved it, and then some. So that is a very, very. That's not an easy life to live. Let's put it like that. How did you cope? I mean, there's only so many times that you can get up and be really in a good mood at five thirty. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> well, as sick as this may sound, <laughs> um, I felt very confident in what I was doing and how I was raising my child and the decisions that I was making with furthering, you know, myself as it relates Beautiful. to having a responsible job, being responsible with my daughter, paying my own bills, pursuing, you know, a career based on, you know, my degree. And so I didn't, I didn't feel like I was coping. I actually woke up feeling really responsible and responsible made me feel good. Nice, nice, nice. Okay, so that was that was beautiful. Okay, so how long did that last? Oh, yeah. So it lasted about till the, till the time I decided to give somebody else a chance. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that... <laughs> so that was um, eight years to be exact. I, for eight years, I just stayed focused on, you know, raising my daughter, doing what I was supposed to do, taking care of what I believed, you know, I wanted and solely being, you know, being the sole provider and protector, like it was just me. So I had to figure out how to run the tightest ship in my own life and still have that balance. Mm -hmm. Without feeling guilty, right? Mm. <laughs> and so, I think because everything was like in a five minute like radius for us, I wasn't spending a lot of time in traffic. I wasn't like, oh, I'll be there in an hour. Like everything was so close okay. that it was, you know, it just it just felt good. It felt like I made the right decisions and was doing the right thing. So, nice. so when I met this individual, this next individual, um. I met family, I met friends, we dated for a couple of years, mm. I was I didn't have any reason to, uh, like to question anything, I didn't see any serious red flags, mm. you know, I've been around the block by this time. I, tr I even tried to reconcile with my own mother, she was had no interest in it. So I accepted that for what it was, it just said, Okay, stay true to who you are. And I will do the same. And you know, it was it was a very, to me, trustworthy um, relationship. And mm. back then there was no Facebook to do your own investigating. There was no, <laughs> you know, public information to see how far back you can go and find all the information, that, you know, out that you need to. There was no there wasn't any of that. So here I am thinking, you know, he's just as responsible. You know, he's he's I he's. Um, excuse me, he is introducing me to everybody. I don't feel like there's any red flags. Mm. So by the second year of us dating, uh, I was pregnant with my second child. And at my third month of pregnancy, I 
developed the chicken pox, which was very life-threatening to mm. my unborn child. Mm. Now, mm. during that same time frame, he was in another state being interviewed for a job, which he was offered. So when he came back, he was like, hey, this opportunity, you know, is here for us. Do you want to go? We're not we're not married. I know you're in school. Your daughter's, you know, in the middle of her second grade year, mm-hmm. your jaw. Like, what do you want to do? And I was like, why are you kidding? Like the biggest thing getting out of the you know, when you get out the hood, the furthest away from the hood you go, the more successful you are. Right. So let's go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so. So I planned it out. You know, I wanted to finish out my semester. I wanted, you know, for my daughter to not miss uh, school during the transfer, even though it was across the states. Um, I waited for also her spring break. So I had enough time to pack and give my notices and everything. So I wasn't too stressed. It was more excitement. Okay. Which is so, yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. So while uh, seven months pregnant, I am driving across country with my child to go to, you know, my new home and start my new family. And it was um, going to be three weeks before our personal belongings arrived, which is fine because that gave me time to get the kitchen straight, learn my new doctors, Mm -hmm. figure out the neighborhood, make sure my daughter is happy with her new school and, you know, do any Mm -hmm. like parent, teacher, anything, anything. Those three weeks were perfect. So um, the day that our boxes arrived, I'm unpacking, feeling so, you know, just grateful and happy, excited about the future. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. This is just like almost a dream come true and like pinch me to make sure it's it's I'm alive. And while I'm unpacking and putting stuff away, I come across remnants of another woman. Did you hear me? I did. And I was like, my eyeballs are popping out of my face. My heart is pounding through my chest. I'm, tr- I'm when you trying say to rem- have, like- Sorry, when you say remnants, remnants could be body parts or it could be yeah. clothing. Um, that's just Personal be- belongings. Okay, that's, that's maybe a bit better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't okay. sure where this is going, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. Okay. So yes, personal belongings. Okay. And, oh, that's bad and, enough. Okay. Hello. That's right. So I'm like trying to go through all the conversations we had over the last three months, right? While he's settling in, going to his new job and I'm over, you know, at the old place packing and stuff. And I'm like, did he have friends? Did he have family? Did he have visitors? Like, oh my gosh, I can't, like, I don't even know how I'm going to address this without coming across accusatory. Let me just think of a way to be, you know, calm about it. It tormented me all freaking day long. I knew that I was in no shape to call at that moment. Like, I just needed to cool down and get my thoughts right. I knew that much. So... I picked up my daughter from school and made dinner, did homework, did everything normally. And when she went to bed, I told him that we needed to have a conversation. And we sat on the couch. And I said, while I was unpacking, I came across belongings of another woman. And I would like to know, what is this about? Who does it belong to? Why am I here? And he was like, you were going through my stuff? You were going through my stuff? I said, no, I'm not going through your stuff. This was underneath the bathroom sink. And I don't understand. Before I could even repeat myself, I was already on the floor. 
He was sitting on top of my pregnant stomach. I was eight months pregnant at this time with his left hand around my neck and his right hand closed fist punching me over and over and over. And I have no idea how long I was down there squirming. I have no idea what type of noises. I have no idea. All I remember is this voice, mom, mom. And I said, that's my daughter. And this like big rush of adrenaline went through my body. My feet slammed on the floor. My hips are thrusted to the ceiling. He rolls off the top of me. I pop up. I don't even know how. I run around the couch, grab her little hand because she was already down the stairs. And we ran out the house just like that. It's like 11 o'clock at night. Okay. And I'm down the neighbor's door. Please, please. I need to use the phone. I, you know, mm-hmm. I need to use the phone. And I'm like, you know, they had kids. I said, you know, please send my daughter with the kids. I just, you know, I called the cops and I don't know how long it took the cops to get there. All I remember is I'm just sobbing and sobbing. And I'm thinking to myself, is this my reality? I just spent my savings on moving out here. I don't have a job. I can't collect unemployment. I don't know anybody. I'm just now meeting the neighbor. Uh, I don't have family. I don't have friends. I'm in a foreign state. I'm in a foreign place. I have no idea even how to get like around beyond my neighborhood. I don't know the new law, the laws in this new area. Like, oh my gosh. And then I'm like, can I even have this baby? I don't even know if my baby's okay. Am I going to be able to do it on my own? Every single thought that you could possibly think Mm -hmm. of I was in complete devastation. Are you kidding me? Mm. So the cops finally get there and this guy did not hit my face. My face was not bruised. The cop pulls my ear back and my whole head is already blue and purple with blood blisters and everything. It was enough to take the pictures, to have the evidence. And they went to, to go get him and take him away. So I'm just going to kind of go through this part quickly, but I had nowhere to go. The shelters were not taking anybody at midnight. I don't, I don't, I don't even think, I, can, I don't even recall if I could get a, a hold of a shelter. Uh, the cops said to give them a call that they would, you know, talk me through some things. Uh, I don't even think I remembered that comment because uh, I don't even think I called until the next day. And I'm thinking, okay, I have to go back to the house um to the apartment okay i'm going to tell my i'm going to give my daughter an escape route i'm going to put all the all the furniture up against the door i need to stay up all night because i'm not going to go to sleep for all i know he could be released or bailed out or i don't even know what how what the you know laws were in that state so i just stayed all up all night crying praying repacking thinking about everything how am I going to do this what's going to happen I got to take my daughter to school tomorrow I have to because I have to go to the emergency room to check on my unborn baby to make sure that my baby is okay what I have to call the cops or go down to the station to see what is what do I what should I know what's what's available to me what should I expect meanwhile I'm like calling different agencies like the health and human services different types of shelters I'm standing in I am standing in line for all of that everything. And there is no such thing as real-time resources for real-time victims in the heat, like real-time. When I'm saying real-time, like there is no such thing. You have to stand in line. You have to fill out the application, wait for a phone call to get um, interviewed, wait to see if you qualify, uh, you know. And I'm sitting here like, I'm about to be living in my car. I have a baby on the way. Like, 
are you kidding me right now? My daughter's going to be out of school in three weeks. My son is going to be born in five weeks. How can I convince the doctors to give me a C-section and give me, pull him out sooner? He can't be in my body. Oh my gosh, the trauma. It was so much. And I had to figure out what the heck I was going to do in, in 47 days. And it was the most, I don't even know what kind of word to put on it. It was just the most pressure, anxiety driven, stress related time in my life. And you think I was calling home? You think I was calling anybody for help? Like, who am I going to call my friends? Well, yeah, I was about to say, who is there for you there? (laughs) You know, you know what I'm saying? Friends. And why am I going to go back to the place that we both came from? Mm. Uh, Word gets around. Mm. Why? This guy just tried to kill me with his his own baby inside of me. Like, what? I don't even know who this person is anymore. I'm not going to put anything past you, past him. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, my gosh. And then how can I be so stupid? How did I not know? Where were the signs? How did I miss them? I didn't realize until later in life, these are like narcissistic behaviors, you know, strip everything away, make you completely independent, strip you of everything, make you be reliant 100%. So now I can dictate, control, have, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't know that in the beginning, like I just thought abuse was, you know, physical. No. You know, this is beyond physical. Like you were saying before, it's also financial. Here I am. I have nothing, not a pot to piss in, a window mm-hmm. to throw it out of nothing. My electricity went out. My phone went out. I had no gas to put on my car. I'm on foot exactly. in the 95 degree weather, eight months pregnant, trying to get, you know, food, water, anything. It was insane. And who being pregnant. Oh, man, I did not drink, but I thought about it every day. <laughs> I, I did. Interesting. Um. And so, yeah, so it was just, it was just, it was, it was hell. It was complete hell. And so much that I was, you know, beating myself up for because it was my decisions that I stood on. And now we're here because of me. So now I have to really kick it up into, you know, survival and protector. But during that time in the beginning, I will say like the first you know, month or two while I'm waiting for, you know, my baby to be born. And then after that, don't forget, we have all these hormones that are going on too with pregnancy and all that. Mm. So, you know, I'm crying and then I'm angry and then I'm like laughing because that's the only way I can deal with it. And (laughs) I have no actual like channel because I have to be here 100% for, you know, both of my kids. I have nowhere to drop anybody off. And even if I did, what the heck was I going to do with myself? Mm. You know? So. Wow. 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 What the hell? Yeah. With hindsight, how was he successful in displaying a loving relationship or, or creating the illusion of a loving relationship for so long? And were there signs that you missed? Yeah. So, you know, the way that he presented that lovingness and all that was, you know, he was really such a sweetheart to his mom. Every time that he, you know, was doing something for his mom, he would call and see if I was available. So then like we could all, you know, if it was a pedicure or a massage or, you know, a nice dinner or brunch Mm. or, you know, he was just like really respectful with his mom. He seemed to be really close with his, you know, sister and cousins. He had a good, you know, relationship with coworkers. There really wasn't anything that raised flags. I, it was um, 
As a matter of fact, a coworker of mine before I left said, make sure that you really get into a big fight before you go, because you have to know, you just have to know, you know, she was an older woman. I didn't even question her. I was like, okay, I think I like that idea, you know? And I did to the point where I've been practiced stuff, put it in boxes and bags and threw it outside. <laughs> I mean, like I went to the extreme. I really did. I did. And even then, even then there was no physical anything. It was more of like just in my face and very like, why? You know, and so to me, it was like still nothing like I had been exposed to in the past. But again, in the past, it was just in my face all the time, the physical component of it. There wasn't this like predatory type of step-by-step protocol process, like attack the mind first and Mm. then the finances and then the stability. And then the, you know, for him, I felt like it was like a straight up checklist. Of course, I didn't figure that out until like way later. Mm. But it's textbook, it's textbook narcissist um, behavior predatory i think that's a really lovely way of putting it um, there's nothing lovely about it but uh, it's a really good way of of saying that because that's exactly what it is um who was the other woman no idea never found out mm. all i got was the fist mm. <laughs> oh thank you that's enough i mean you, you don't need more messages there isn't it um yeah And so I testified, I decided to testify, I went in and I spoke to the district attorney and I was ready to go and, you know, they put me on the stand. And let me tell you that when, you know, when you're on the stand and they bring your abuser in, I shrunk like a punk when I saw him and we made eye contact my yeah i'm ready to tell my story let them know exactly what you did i have a zero tolerance how dare you try to kill my own baby yeah that's what i thought i was gonna say but as soon as we made eye contact i was like this and i didn't know how to talk and i was so pissed off because i couldn't pull my shit together interesting and the and the judge said i've seen this too many times you're sentenced so i'm thinking now you know, not then I'm thinking now, like, so if you've seen this too many times, why are you allowing the pattern to be repeated where you're bringing the person in to basically re-victimize the victim that's trying to testify? Like that doesn't make any sense. Or is that the biggest hallmark of your true relationship that, that the fear that you didn't even realize was there because here you are to go, the go getter, the kick ass woman. And then suddenly the whole, bravado the whole macho side fell apart and there was the real you scared was that not the biggest message that you could have sent ever to that judge or to anyone who was looking perhaps so perhaps so being on the being on that side during that time yeah you know i didn't know but yes now being on the other side during Mm. this time if i saw that yes that would be a telltale sign for sure yeah so it's it's hard. I mean, of course, you want to protect women. Was there at any one time uh, uh, the thought that people were not believing you? Because that seems to be a recurring theme. Um, equally, when you talk about women uh, who have been uh, suffering from domestic abuse, um, they um, the, the, the perpetrators can be quite quite uh, convincing <laughs> and insidious. I had one woman uh, who came to me with tummy pains, 20 years of tummy pains, and I was a pain physician. And I had, I as part of my evaluation, they had to fill out reams of paper 
And one of the questions was, have you ever been abused? And so the day I saw her, she came with a support person. She came in and I introduced myself, wanted to sit down. And she said, doctor, I just want to comment on something. And I said, yeah. And she said, you're the first person in 20 years who has asked me if I have been abused. And I said, tell me more. And it turned out that her husband had, as part of his domestic violence, always kicked her in the in the abdomen, punched her in the abdomen, so that there were no witness, that there were no there was no evidence. That's right. And it was that kind of behavior. And the moment she said that, I knew we don't need another CT scan, and you don't need another operation on your tummy. Let's talk. And that was that was exactly that. So. I think it is so important. And because of that, there is no evidence. Therefore, people say, no, he's such a nice guy. I don't believe her. Did that ever happen to you? No, because I really wasn't calling home and I was in a new space. So I didn't have friends or colleagues. I wasn't at work. I was, you mm. know, I didn't I didn't have a, a social life at that at, at that time frame under those circumstances. I didn't have anybody or anywhere. And and plus, wh- whatever I did, I chose not to even share because at this point I made my bed. I need to lie in it. I already know that mm. statement. Goodness gracious. Yeah. OK. How did it continue? I mean, you, I mean, the path alone from you making the accusation to then appear in front of the judge, that would have been months, would it not? It was. Well, I was still pregnant. So I think that it was probably just about a month. It was about three and a half weeks later. Oh, wow. That so, was fast, yeah. Yeah, so it was pretty fast. And that's what was so nerve-wracking because I knew that where I was at... You know, I had I listen, I was not dumb. I took all my paperwork. I went down to the leasing office and I said, I need you guys to take my name off the lease. Here's everything that happened because I knew that I was eventually going to have to get, you know, my own place. And I I could not have that on my on my credit report or my record. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to provide for my children. Mm -hmm. So that was like the first thing, you know, that I did after I got out of the emergency room to make sure that my unborn child was okay, Mm -hmm. And, you know. Um, I just, I'm sorry, I got lost with that <laughs> response. But no, 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 you, you always, you always look out. You're actually doing an, a, a huge compartmentalization. Whilst on the one hand, you tell me, yes, you fell apart and that's not in tears everywhere. You had always that, that, that mama. What bear. do I have to do? That's what do right. I have that's to right. do? Mama bear will, will be, will be there. And, and you don't stand between mama bear and her cups. Um, so, I mean, yes, that's... especially if they're all hungry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. My goodness. So what I happened with became... him then? Um, yeah, so he was so he ended up being sentenced and uh it was a very short term sentencing. It was not it was less than five years. Mm. And so I at least knew that half of that was going to be, you know, taken off for good behavior because that's what they do. And so it was a double attempted homicide. And to only be given two years and a few months for a double attempted homicide, that's hardly anything. That was just only enough time for me to actually find a room for us three to live in. And then to find like just 
I didn't even look for a career. I was no longer looking for a career. I obviously was not in college anymore. Now I'm just looking at how much do I need to make an hour so I can pay the bills and have something to make sure that we're good. All that other stuff is out the door. And so that's what I did. As soon as my, um, you know, son got his first set of shots, I was ready to take him to daycare and start working because I had to. That was it. So it was almost like my entire childhood had I had went through all of that to prepare me for now this adult type of survival. And because I tell you what, if I didn't go through what I went through as a child, there is no way in hell I would have had the mindset or the stamina to believe in myself that I could actually make it on my own. Wow. How did they continue? Whew. Well, I mean, that's it's it's 20 years later. So I was just extremely laser focused. Nothing in the world um, was important to me other than going to work, getting back to school, making sure that we were on the tightest schedule, routine schedule possible. I literally like waking up at five, making sure that we're out the door by six, by six o'clock, breakfast was made, lunch was made, dinner is in the crock pot. We're out the door. One kid gets dropped off that daycare. The other kid gets dropped off at school. I go to work. I get out of work. I pick them both up. Um, eventually about six months, uh, or eight months later, um, I had a great neighbor, another single mom that's been through some stuff and she was willing to help me while I went back to school. So she stayed with my kids for three hours, three times a week while I went back to school. And I actually graduated with my bachelor's degree, um, you know, years later, Mm. but I had that support. And, you know, that's what I want to say is that those statistics that I said earlier, you know, one out of three, one out of seven, people don't talk about domestic violence or the different types of violence that falls under it. But the second that you do, you'll be surprised. And please always keep those statistics in your mind. You'll be surprised how many people, if they're just an earshot of hearing it, will be like, oh yeah, you know what? This or that, or I'm willing to help, or I can do this, or let me share this. Let me tell you what worked. Let me tell you what didn't work. It's like trauma affects us all. We all have some sort of experience or exposure to it. We all respond to it differently. But the one thing that brings us together is leveling up our coping skills, you know? And I was a victim that moment that he attacked me. But when I realized that I had there was I had no control and there was nothing I could do to prevent it, that's when I realized I was victimized. I was no longer the victim. I was the one that was victimized. And then once I got beyond that mentally, emotional, like all of all of the things that you need to go through, it's like the the grieving process phases, right? And realize, no, I'm going to do something with this. I'm going to share what my story is. I want to tell people how to level up their coping. I want to talk about how to have post-traumatic growth, PTG, the opposite of PTSD. And, you know, that's the definition of PTG. You know, it was, it was first, it was brought upon by two psychologists back in the early nineties, Dr. Calhoun and Dr. Tedeschi. They're two psychologists and they say, what you go through psychologically, that's so detrimental and, and, and traumatic in your life. When you get to that place where you're wiser and stronger because of it, and you're doing something with it, then and there are you in that growth. 
Absolutely. And so many of us can do it. Absolutely. And it's so beautiful. And it is, it is giving your suffering a meaning. It is making sense of the suffering. And by you taking action, you are now no longer the victim. You're not even the survivor. You're the thriver. You are actually yes. going out there and and helping others. And again, you're taking back control. You're you are actually controlling the narrative to a certain degree. And that is beautiful. And you, the more you tell your story, the more you come to terms with it, the less emotionally upsetting it will be for you. I certainly remember the first few times when I told my uh, told my story. Uh, it was turmoil within me because there were still so many emotions attached to it. Whilst nowadays I can talk freely even about those things that are really not so nice in my life, and uh, it is they are no longer hurting me. If at all, they give me the drive to behave differently and make different choices and maybe share that with others and that's that's where you came about so what where was the transformation happening you were saying you were ready to now share your story but at the moment you're still trying to struggle to make ends meet you're 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 far from the the woman out there doing now speaking roles and 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 working with other departments uh with your, within your society to make things better so how did that transformation happen? Oh, so two things, two, two major things happened in my life that, that catapulted me here. <clears throat> when my daughter was moving out of the nest and she said, you know, mom, I love and respect you for the helicopter mom that you were. <laughs> I love and respect that you were able to just never, never check out or abandon us, but be, you know, that mom that was there during, you know, all of the, the drama and trauma, even though I did a great job, you know, keeping her separate. It's, it's always the aftermath. Right. <clears throat> and she said, you were so laser focused on protecting and providing. And you were always there that I could just, I could just reach you. you. I could touch you. She said, but when I was going through my emotional turmoil or my own confusion during teenage years, as close as you were to me, I couldn't touch you emotionally. I couldn't connect with you emotionally. And I was like, what? What? Are you kidding me? Do you know everything that I've done? Do you know the sacrifices I've made? Do you know what I've been through? And then I was like, oh my gosh, everything I wanted to protect my baby from, I freaking did it to her, man. I freaking did it to her. I didn't know. Oh. I didn't even realize that I was checked out. Oh. I didn't have anything to measure it against. Oh. I don't know what that is. I didn't have a connection, you know, and I was just like, Oh my gosh. So my focus was like, okay, baby, you know what? We're going to get through this. And I literally started doing so much research on like, you know, what is emotional emptiness? How, how do you get emotional? What's emotional awareness? What the heck is emotional intelligence? What's that? What, what's mental health? Like so many of these things that they talk about today, we didn't have access to back then. Like, nope. what is that? Nope. So exactly. I finally stumbled across like the five love languages 
because I was on a mission. I wanted to make sure that I cleared this up and that we were good. Me and my baby. Are you kidding me? That was so that was like daggers to my heart and soul. And I came across the five love languages and I said, honey, listen, we're going to have to read this together, do these quizzes together, learn your love languages for each of us and make this work. And, you know, we did. And she thought I was being sarcastic when I was making my best efforts because it's totally not who I am. (laughs) So I'm trying to, yeah, so I'm trying to be loving and giving her her love language and she just she literally thought I was being sarcastic and I said listen you either want this or you do not want it because I need to be vulnerable and safe at the same time not vulnerable feeling stupid when I'm trying to give you what you're asking me and I'm being super authentic behind it Ooh, wow that's some serious shit there wow you know what I'm saying Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm like rawr God, Mama Bear is back in the house. I know, I know. But at the same token, I absolutely understand it. I so feel for it. There is the same emotional turmoil that I went through. I, I, it hurts. It so hurts. Um, how fuck? Where did you go with that? Oh my gosh. So I just didn't stop. I was very communicative with her and explaining, like I said, either you want this or you don't, because you're either going to push me away or you're going to embrace it and get more and you get ultimately what you want. And, you know, it has been six years, seven years in the making. And I will say that today we have a very healthy relationship, both, you know, emotionally and mentally. I've definitely applied a lot of what I learned with her and through her, obviously with my younger one. And, you know, without their blessings, I would not even be here sharing my story because they ultimately were the recipients of, you know, how I coped and how I dealt with things. So that time in my life, they, you know, received the domino effect of it. And Mm -hmm. I'm so happy that I was not that checked out parent that even through thick and thin and the worst of drama and trauma, I was able to like, you know, keep my stuff together to the best of my ability. And they don't have, you know, they're, they're not in therapy for trauma. You know, they they may be angry at some things that I've done, but you know, Hey, be mad at me for whatever you're saying you're mad at me for, because that was just be, me being a mom and I'm okay. I'm, I don't feel bad. <laughs> you know, sorry, but not sorry. If that's all you got after, after all this time and everything we've been through, I, I, I can live with that, you know? Interesting. Yeah. So what I, for the sake of sobriety, I will say that, you know, when it comes to my drinking, (laughs) I have learned a couple different things. Um, One, and so I've gone through different, different times in my life where I, you know, like kind of indulged, right? So like in my early 20s, it was more of the escape at night to dance because dancing was my outlet. Like I would dance to get all the frustration, anxiety, stress and everything out. So, you know, the more you drink, the more you dance, that's the balance, right? (laughs) Okay. I can remember well. And then, you know, after like all that trauma and, you know, when you're in that survival protective mindset, you know, partying or those types of things, in my case, was not something that I was interested in. I mean, I was penny pinching every every single paycheck anyways. It just wasn't in the budget and I didn't care. The only thing I cared about was my little unit. Um, But as time progressed and, you know, 
uh, we grew, you know, I found myself, I found myself, I didn't, I didn't like wine. Wine was more of the, you know, like, this is what you do when you go out with your, you know, uh, executives at work or your coworkers, <laughs> and you drink the wine. And I'm like, I don't like this. I don't like this. I, I don't. And then when you start seeing like them acting the way that they're acting, I'm like, yeah, I really don't. <laughs> this is not even my click, you know? And so it was, you know, very short lived. And then I did realize that, you know, when I drink and I'm with somebody I'm dating, Usually I don't have a good time. I become feisty. I got, I become uh, a little bit angry. I got things to say and I act uh, a certain uh, way, uh, 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 you know, but when I'm with my girls and I'm with my friends and there's no, like, there's no like emotions involved other than no, you know, Hey, I love you unconditionally. There's no judging here. Like I got your back regardless. Act a fool. If you, if I, if you want to, I got you. Don't worry. Like we're having the best of time, but when I am drinking and I have more than two and it's with somebody I have like an emotional connection with, or I'm, I'm probably not, we should probably just not do that. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I mean, that's the insight that you're there. Okay. When I was drinking, part of the drinking was to be able to release my emotions so give me uh, a certain music, give me a certain, uh, typically red wine. And then within 10, 15 minutes, I can be finally sobbing and crying and feel the, the pain and admit to the pain. Um, so how it's interesting that you say when you have more than two drinks, suddenly your emotions come out. So when do you let them out? How do you let them out at all? How do you decompress? Yeah, I think I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I think it's I think it's about being smarter. Like as you grow, you get to learn yourself more. Mm. And, you know, that these are some of the things that I talk about after a traumatic, you know, devastating experience in your life, you may start questioning who you are or who you've become from that. And while you're trying to figure out who your new identity is or what this refined person is, you know, go fall back on who you know that you're not and keep your boundaries wrapped around who you're not. So then this way you're keeping, you know, the things mm. that you absolutely can, will not accept out while you're learning who you're, you're the new you is. So nice, nice. <clears throat> You know, so I would have to say that, you know, the I'm just, I've just, I've never had the opportunity to really deal with my emotions. So the way that I deal with my emotions is just up leveling my, my mental coping skills. Oh. So for example, instead of focusing on what I don't have, what I can't do, what my limitations are, I'm like, okay, you know what? Well, while you can't do these things, you could do all of these things, you know, you could go for a hike, you could go for a walk, you could go swimming, you can go. So I'm going to do that. Why am I going to sit here and like focus on the limitating negative things, which become affirmations, which is, you know, affirmation okay. is considered, okay. you know, fact, you know, 
why would I do that? Why, why would I keep myself in a box that, yeah. that, that the world wants to keep me in? I have yeah. enough people that don't want to see me succeed or don't want me, you know, to pass them up or maybe feel threatened based on, you know, what I have to offer. Yeah. So if I wouldn't allow anybody to talk to me in a certain belittling, demeaning yeah. manner, why would I talk to myself like that? Ooh. But we all do it. Uh, we are our worst critic and we sabotage the shit out of ourselves because of our own freaking thoughts. So I teach you how to intercept those bad boys. Okay. Uh, <laughs> bad girls. That's called it bad girls. Not just yeah, bad boys. Whatever. <laughs> You're so right. You're so right though. That's my pet peeve. Uh, also my pet hate with regards to my own, my own behavior and my core beliefs. I still see me as a failure. I will always see myself as a failure, as a, a fallback position. And I have to constantly remind myself that everything I do, every intentional choice I make is actually a win. I have now intentionally chosen to have this fantastic interview with you. I've intentionally chosen to actually go through the turmoil of feeling those emotions that's a win because in the past I was running away from those emotions. So it's those kind of things. I'm not a failure. I have figured out what does not work and I'm hell bent to, to go a different path, but I'm not a failure. Right. And I think that that's is, right. that is where we need to repackage it. And that takes, that takes action. That takes emotional, uh, emotional, mm, how shall I say that? You, you awareness. Wanna, yeah, when uh, what is awareness? Intelligence. Um, do you actually feel your emotions? Yes, were... I can even tell you where they live. Oh, where do they live? Okay, can I do? Can we do this exercise? Oh, go for it. Okay, so what I want you to do is think about your favorite song. Okay, how does that make you feel? Good. Yeah. Where do you, where do you feel that goodness? <laughs> in my core, <laughs> in my core. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause more than likely you're thinking about the beat already and yeah. you're probably moving no, your body, it's, right? No, immediately <laughs> when I had that, that, uh, when I had that thought, my, I took a deep breath in, uh, and uh, activated my parasympathetic nervous system. So it was just kind of, ah, <sighs> it was that kind of a thing, a feeling that, yeah. Okay, so that's a positive trigger. You uh -huh. know where that positive emotion now resides in your body. It's in your core, right? Yeah. Okay, so now take a moment and think about when your teenager told you that you were unemotional, that you were emotionally unavailable. Think about that. How did that make you feel? And where are you feeling that emotion right now? Interesting. In my shoulders. I want to okay. droop. I want to, I want to, I want to sort of bow my head in shame kind of a thing. I okay. feel the, the tension in my shoulders. Right. So there's your emotion. You can, you can identify or name it, whatever you want, but now you know where it lives. So if you are triggered and you're feeling that emotion go right here, you can already say, I'm being triggered because it's going right here. Now, all my power, all my authority resides in this moment. What do I want to do about it? 
How do I want to respond? And how do I want to react? What is my intention? What do I want to walk away with? Very nice. Very nice. Very nice. So that is how I teach you where your emotions live and how to then at that moment have control over your trigger. That's where that's where I define emotional intelligence. Beautiful, beautiful, because there is such a beautiful, strong link between our body, physical body and our emotions. We just need to figure that out and learn more about it. And there are and figure out how to put. I'm sorry, I was going to say, and the filter, the filter in between. Touche, <laughs> touche. <laughs> but also, you then, but the moment you have figured that out, you can actually realize that by you actively taking maybe a power stance, it makes it very, very hard for you to be down and out. Maybe if you go, ta-da, looking forward with a winning smile. Maybe taking really seriously the the make out of you, making fun of yourself. It's very hard to be depressed when you're standing in that pose. Okay. And what have (laughs) I just done? I brought my shoulders back. I did exactly the opposite of the slouching forward, the pain. I, when I stood like that, I actually took a deep breath in. And so again, you can actually counter those feelings. You can, you can amplify the good feelings. And you can counter the bad feelings or the, the, right. the flow on effects on your body. How cool is that? And people take that further because there's nowadays trauma related uh, or trauma focused uh, yoga. There are the, the many martial arts that have actually a very strong component of well-being in there. And it is because it, it, uh, it they include certain movements within your body that where your body relaxes and where you actually take some of the triggers away, where you start relaxing yourself. And that's beautiful. So there's already there are already a lot of flow and effects from the little exercise that you have just done with me. And so this is powerful. This is powerful because you're no longer a victim, guys. You are That's basically right. now taking control. You're taking action. And with action steps, you can change. You you have developed the emotional awareness and you're working on that. You're working to, to, to get to know these waves of neurochemicals that wash over you and figure out, maybe give them names, maybe play with them a little bit, get to know them, and then uh, see what are their effects. So you're no longer running away from them, but you're actually greeting them for the messengers that they are, because they all come there for a damn good reason. And and. There is a reason that that you feel anxious. There's a reason that you feel down. There's a reason for that. Um, it, it is it is a beautiful world that opens up, and you have you have you have experienced that, and that is what you are teaching others now, isn't it? Tell us yeah, a bit about the work that you are doing. Oh my gosh, yeah, and that's just boots on the. I mean, that's from being boots on the ground, like in it for so long by myself too. So constantly being that resourceful individual, constantly trying to navigate, constantly seeking different ways and healthy ways. And, you know, not just, not just for me, but also, you know, for my kids, but, Mm. you know, they are of me. So, you know, if I'm not putting into me, I'm ultimately not putting into them because Mm. I have to be right in order to provide and to give and to keep sanity, you know, and Mm. that's the one thing that, 
another thing that I talk about is while we're going through our natural, humane, trauma-driven responses, like extreme independence being one of them, you know, when as a parent, while we're going through that, we should not lose sight on how we are emotionally feeding our children. And I go one step further, yourself. Uh, you're yeah. giving, giving, giving. And however that giving looks like, in your case, you called it negative, the helicopter parenting, the being in control and needing to be in control because otherwise it would have all fallen apart. Um, so how do you feed yourself? How do you keep yourself sane in this kind of, of role? Um, how do you, where do you, where can you intentionally let go of that control for a bit? and look after yourself so me personally or for everybody oh both both questions <laughs> i mean you you are you're this go-getter mama bear uh out there okay who likes who looks after mama bear yeah mama bear needs to look after mama bear mama bear was brought into the world by her by herself mama bear is going to leave the world by herself <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. There's only so much much bullshit I can take in an interview. <laughs> yes, whilst that is that is you, that is that is your survival mechanism that you fall back onto. Who is looking after you? How do yeah, you look honestly, after yourself? So honestly, I will say. Remember before I said there was two things that changed my life, and mm. the first thing I shared was, you know, my daughter telling me that I was emotionally unavailable, and the second thing was being in a car accident. I was in a car accident just one year and two months ago, and I had a one percent chance of surviving. I Jeez. should not be here today. It was definitely um, a design for sure. It was the first time that I felt like I was not fighting for my own life, that somebody else was fighting on my behalf for my life. Um, like I like I shared with you, I fought my entire life just to just to live, just to raise myself and then raise my kids and, you know, protect them from danger. And when I was in ICU for, you know, two weeks while I was in rehab for a month, um, you know, I knew that it wasn't me that was fighting for my life. Something bigger than me was fighting for my life. And that definitely changed it. And like I was saying before, when I was mentioning, oh, if I focus on what I can't do or my limitations here, or, you know, because 50% of my body was damaged. Mm -hmm. I was not even at one point, I was not even able to raise my arm without, you know, by itself with, with nothing in it. I could not even raise my own arm, like literally half my body was done. And, you know, I just, I just knew that it was saved for a purpose. And I know that in my bones, I truly feel that this is my purpose. I am supposed to share my story and, wow. and teach people and show people how to replace those negative affirmations with positive affirmations, how to wow. kill and stomp out that, negative inner critic and replace it with a positive oh. voice yeah. um you know how to just intercept those sabotagers that i was talking about oh. earlier and there's no such thing as you know forgetting there's no such thing as oh. no. you know replacing yeah. memories but there is such a thing as you know changing what it is Re when i say replacing they're always going to be there but if you replace the negative with the future 
I'm saying it wrong. If you replace a negative memory with a future goal, then your energies are mm. going to a more positive place mm. that's going to then generate motivation, then give you more clarity. And then all of a sudden you're like feeling like you have more purpose and mm. you're going to keep going and going because you realize who you're influencing, who you're, who, who influences you, where you're going to build the community. And I mean, like you just grow. Mm. It's just changing that and shifting that mindset. It takes six to 12 months to break a bad habit. It only <laughs> takes like 21 to 28 to start creating a new one. So true. So true. <laughs> 300 so repetitions to, to do a, yeah, a, a good right. physical thing. 3,000 repetitions to undo uh, a bad movement. You're so right. You're so right. So uh, condition, condition your positive habits so that they become a natural part of your day. Exactly. And but it takes intention, like Absolutely. you have to carve out time throughout your day yeah. to actually do that. And that's what my programs are all about. It, that, that, that's exactly what they are. I'm a certified high performance coach. I am, you know, an emotional uh, clarity coach. I am a post-traumatic strategian, post-traumatic growth strategian, like I work with you on training your brain. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, you're an amazing woman. Um, and if people feel that there is a link there and they want to know more about you and maybe get in touch, where can they find you? Oh, well, thank you. That's I have Facebook, uh, Instagram, and my website is all Be Your Incredible Self. That is spelled correctly. And be your incredible self, believe it or not. I believe that the incredible She-Hulk <laughs> <laughs> is a super hero that does not have superhero powers. She has superhuman powers. The the Hulks, She-Hulk and He-Hulk. <laughs> Nobody knows about the She-Hulk. She's been around since the 80s. I know they got this new thing coming out I about know, her. I know, I know, yeah. Yeah, but she's been around since the 80s, stronger, <laughs> smarter and everything. Unbelievable. <laughs> but they're triggered. They, they they become these green monsters, destructive monsters when they're triggered. And so they do two things. They either retreat to avoid or they become destructive. And the more angry they get, the more destructive they get. And then they don't even like who they are. And it's like, how many of us have that story? You know, oh, yeah. so be your incredible self. We all want to level up. Let's do this. <laughs> Beautiful. And guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. All of Agape's uh, uh Links are down there. What have you got to lose? Get in touch and try to figure out who is the new you? Who is who do you want to be when you grow up? And and why do you want to start from scratch and uh, try to figure that out all alone? <sighs> Don't you think you can speed things up a little bit when you work with someone who actually knows what they are doing? Maybe because they have been in the darkness themselves and are now sharing the light with others? And is that not a much more promising path than rather try it all yourself? I know it is. I know. I, I want to do it all myself. No, no, I'm, I'm strong. I can do it all myself. Yeah, no, 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 no. Nowadays, I, I put together power teams where I'm the dumbest member of the team. And only then can I actually grow and learn. 
So that's why I'm so grateful to you, Agapi, for, for coming onto my show, because you have actually made me realize quite a few things there. Um, and uh, it is a beautiful growth that has occurred in the last 90 minutes with me. So for that, I'm grateful. And maybe a bit uncomfortable because you've raised certain <laughs> memories and certain trauma within me where I actually have to say, huh, maybe I need to do a little bit more work there. But at least I've identified the sore. I've ripped off the, the plaster and there's oh, still a bit of pus there. We better get that pus out because it, you know you can't grow healthy and stay healthy long with little pieces of pus squirting out of you. Yeah, no, 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 no. So it just means you're human. <laughs> I mean, exactly, exactly right. And that's beautiful. So let's go out there and let's make this world a bit of a better place by being honest with what has occurred to us and use that to our benefit. Whatever trauma has occurred to you, let's use that and harness that as a, a meaning or as a, as, a, as, a, as a power for growth. I think the post-traumatic growth, PTG, that is really where so many of us can, can be, become better human beings. And for that, I'm proud of. I'm proud of the battle scars that I wear. I'm proud of the trauma that I've gone through. Uh, these were not nice times, but uh, they made me who I am now. And I think that's exactly the same with you. So thank that's you so right. much. Thank you so much for coming onto my show. I'm ever, ever so grateful for your honesty, authenticity, integrity. It's gorgeous to hear that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate oh. it. And you guys out there... Go out there, live with passion, look after yourself and make this world a better place. And maybe start with, with thinking a little bit after this interview and maybe maybe get in touch with Agapi and, and see if you can't actually address some of the demons that were so far hiding deep inside and maybe some of the behavior patterns that you're not so proud of. So thank you very much, Agapi, and you out there, look after yourself. Bye.